Thanks, John Wayne. Uh, good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Avi Odio. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Green Lake. Um, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad to have you with us as well. Like many of you, um, last week we celebrated the Easter holiday and I was with my family. I have a, a husband and two young sons and we sat in pews just like you're sitting in pews now and uh, celebrated that Easter resurrection moment. And if you were here, you know that it's very common on Easter, regardless of you know what church you may be in, that we say that refrain where we say, I say, he has risen and y'all respond. Definitely the week after Easter. That was, that was almost impressive, but that's okay. Um, so we did that. We were, we were worshiping as a family. And uh, my older son, who's four years old, after one of these refrains, leaned over to me and said, hey, mom, what does it mean to be risen? And um, like any good pastor, I leaned back over and said, ask your dad. Uh, I didn't actually do that, but I was really tempted just because I wanted to hear what he would say. Um, Anyway, I gave him kind of the quick, literal four-year-old version of what it means to be risen. I said, well, it means, you know, Jesus died and died on that cross. And then he, he came back to life three days later. He was risen. And um, I love four-year-olds because you never know what will come out of their mouth next. And I figured he'd have a whole host of questions. Some of you with kids know this about what that meant. I certainly do. And uh, he leaned back over and said, got it, mom, thanks. And I was like, my job here is done. Uh, but I've been thinking about that question actually this week because I think about these things. And um, I think it's probably one of the most important questions we can ask. What does it mean to be risen? In the church calendar, the Easter season is actually a 50-day celebration that starts on Easter Sunday and runs through Pentecost Sunday. In the same way that Christmas uh, the Christmas celebration goes for 12 days. Uh, the Easter celebration goes for 50 days in kind of the history and life of the church. That word Pentecost, it actually means 50th. And during this period of 50 days, uh, which historically we've called Eastertide, the church would celebrate each Sunday in those 50 days as though it were Easter. And the reason for this time and space was to consider the profound answer to that question, what does it mean to be risen? Specifically, what does it mean that Christ has risen? Like, what difference does it make? How does it impact my choices, my life direction? Uh, why is it worth orienting my whole life around the story of this one man having risen? Is it worth orienting my whole life around this one story? And that question, it brings us to these final words in Mark that John Wayne read for us this morning. If you're reading along in your Bible or on a phone app, you'll likely see a note that these verses make up what, are called the, uh, what is called the disputed ending of Mark. And they're disputed because these words aren't included in the very oldest manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel, at least today, the ones that we've discovered. And most scholars agree that the 12 verses were actually added um, to the book by members of the early church sometime in the second century. But regardless, these words are part of the Bible. They recall events that have been um, named by other gospels who wrote about Jesus's life. We, we trust that they're true and they're inspired and they're good. And they help us make sense of this really important question. What does it mean to be risen? The first line of our text today says this, after Jesus rose up early on the first day of the week. 
See, right from the start, these words emphasize Jesus's resurrection took place on the first day of the week during the first part of the day. And the implication, the reason the author emphasizes first is because they want us to know uh, to mark this moment as the moment when the inauguration of something new happened, right? This is the first time. What does it mean to be risen? The literal answer is that Jesus has died and come back to life. The deeper answer is that it means newness. It means the start of something wildly life-changing. And our text speaks to these three expressions of newness that matter for our story. Those are a new depth, a new power, and a new invitation. A new depth, a new power, and a new invitation. We're going to talk about those together today as we study this word to us, the church. But as we do that, let's uh, pray together. Loving Father, we are grateful for that truth that you have risen. Um, not just so we can celebrate Easter Sunday, the holiday, but because um, that, that your risenness actually lands in every single moment of our life and our story. And as we attempt to understand just the profound impact of that reality, we pray for your grace. We pray for just a sense of humility. God, we submit to these words. We, we ask that your resurrection life, um, the, the meaning of that would just take deeper root in our being this morning, that we might be transformed, that we might be shaped to be people who indeed look like you. God, we're grateful for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's consider uh, for a moment the reality, this first point of a new depth. Now, as you read through the text, you'll notice there are two different points where the disciples are informed of Jesus's resurrection. In verse 11, Mary Magdalene, who has seen the risen Jesus, goes and she tells the 11 remaining disciples, and they did not believe it. Then just a few verses later, we read that Jesus appeared to the two who were walking. This is likely a reference to uh, Jesus appearing to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. These two also come and report to the disciples. And again, in Mark 16, verse 13, we read, they did not believe them either. Now, as we've seen throughout Mark the last uh, several weeks, this book in particular, this account of Jesus's life, it really emphasizes um, the confusion and the doubt of the disciples. And this passage runs with that theme. The disciples do not believe the news that Jesus has risen. And their doubt is especially interesting because we also see in the book of Mark three separate times where Jesus told this very same group of people that this very thing would happen, that he would rise. Nonetheless, they hang on to doubt. And it's safe to say they continue to doubt because when Jesus spoke of rising, they never imagined the depths from which that, this rising would happen. They never imagined he would go down to the very depths of death itself and rise. And even in that place of darkness and hopelessness, bring about newness. I uh, think I've mentioned before that our older son, the same one who asked that question, uh, his name's Mark. He's very into the Titanic, like really into the Titanic. Uh, we get books from the library about the Titanic. Uh, I often remind him, like, you know, the ship went down, right? Like, this isn't a happy ending. Um, but nonetheless, we, we do this. We learn about it together. I've learned more than I ever care to know. And just this week, for instance, we had out one of these books before bedtime. We were going through it. And we read about how after the Titanic sank, uh, it stayed on the ocean floor for 73 years before its remains were found, were uh, discovered. 
And the part of the Atlantic where the ship sunk is actually over 12,000 feet deep. It's dark. It's not a flat ocean bed. There's actually mountains there. And the reason the boat stayed undiscovered was because no one believed they could reach it. No one believed they could go deep enough to find it. A few groups had tried, but their attempts were always unsuccessful until the year 1984 when a man named Dr. Robert Ballard and a team of folks he worked with, they finally were able to locate the ship. Uh, These pictures are some of the first photos that were taken actually on that initial expedition. And it was deep and dark below the ocean. Now, there's an interesting comparison to be made here. See, the disciples doubted the risen Lord because similar to the Titanic recovery, nobody anticipated Jesus would go to such depths. They watched him die on the cross. And in that moment, they ruled out the possibility for life. It was the logical thing to do. Now, when Jesus was alive, did the disciples think he could bring newness to their story? Absolutely. Did they believe it would happen by overpowering the Roman Empire? Possibly, perhaps even hopefully. Did they ever think that Jesus would go so deep as to overcome death itself? No way. It wasn't possible. See, as we step into this Eastertide season and consider the implications of Jesus having risen, this text invites us to consider the question of belief in depth. If you're anything like me, there are places and spaces in our lives that we assume are simply too deep for newness or for hope to ever reach. The water is too dark. It's too dense. We don't dare venture there. I can proclaim Jesus has risen, but even if it, as I say those words in my heart of hearts, there are, there are circumstances, there are, there are tragedies, there are addictions, there are wars, there are fears, there are systemic evils like racism, there are broken marriages and health situations and questions around my future that I worry are beyond what Jesus's new life can actually reach. See, the reason Jesus is rising is good news is because it means for the first time in human history, we are invited to bring all of what we've deemed unreachable into this territory of newness, of resurrection, of hope. The theologian Fleming Rutledge emphasizes the unique goodness and depth of Easter. When she writes this, she says, no one in human history had ever considered such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. In other words, no one thought newness of life could break into that territory. It was too far out of reach. I love that in our text from today, when Jesus offers the disciples instructions, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. It's worth noting, he doesn't say, you know, go into, just tell the Jews about it. He doesn't even say, just go and proclaim it to all people. He says all creation, literally to every created thing. In other words, there is no thing, no person, no system, no life, no circumstances that lies beyond the new possibility in this risen Christ. For us then, the question becomes, is there an area where you long to see newness, but the depths feel beyond what anyone, including Jesus, can reach or change? Let me just say to name that can be a terribly scary and vulnerable thing to do. In Mark chapter nine, you might remember there's a story where a father brings his sick child to Jesus and the child has been sick for a very long time. And Jesus asked the father of the sick child if he believes, presumably in in Jesus's ability to bring new life. And the father says, you know, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And his response, the father's response there, it's so human. It's so relatable. 
Like I can believe most of what you're saying, but this, this thing, this is about my son. There's nothing in the world I care more deeply about. That of course means it's also my greatest source of vulnerability and now a source of pain for quite some time. And to believe your newness will have a hand even here is to let go of my own sense of control and timing and expectation around exactly how that will look or go. There's, a, there's so much at stake here for this father. So sure, he says, I believe, but also help me believe to this unimaginable depth. Where might you dare to hope that the power of Jesus's resurrection newness will meet you in the depths? Because friends, let me tell you, if it doesn't meet us there, it's not worth it. Maybe today you step towards wholeness. Your step towards wholeness is to simply pray with that hopeful and skeptical father. I believe, but help my unbelief. So Easter is about learning to embrace newness at a greater depth. And then it's also about embracing into our story, a new power, a new power. I'll admit it. When I first saw which text I'd be preaching on this week, my initial thought was, oh no, that's the weird one with the snakes and the poison. I was actually talking with a pastor friend from another church this week, and we were kind of chatting about what the other would be preaching about. And I said, oh, I'm preaching on Mark 16, the end of it. And he said, oh yeah, that's the one about the snakes and the poison. I said, it is, would you like to trade? He said, no. I said, here we are. But let's just name up front. There are some seemingly odd things that come straight from the mouth of Jesus in this passage. After the disciples hear that Jesus has risen on two different occasions and don't believe, Jesus shows up in real time in his risen flesh to this kind of scared group of people. And he says to them, these signs will accompany those who believe by using my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. One of the pastors at Bethany uh, Northeast, who's a good friend of mine, his name's Silas. He grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. And we're talking about... um, this passage. And he told me that in certain pockets of Pentecostalism, this practice of handling deadly snakes still exists. Like it's actually a litmus test in a small majority of churches uh, for a person's, you know, level or degree of faithfulness. Now, rest assured here at Bethany, uh, we don't endorse this particular practice. Uh, We're more of a dog kind of bunch. Wouldn't you say John Wayne? Couple cats in there too, no snakes. Um, But if we can move beyond the initial puzzlement of these words, there's a profound word about new power in the risen Christ and what it means in our story, right? You'll notice each of these signs Jesus names are embodied. They're they're lived out actions, casting out, picking up, speaking, laying of hands. And as the risen Jesus sends his disciples, he declares that actions done in his name, in other words, brought into the context of his story, they actually hold now this unique power. Let's consider for a moment the word about the snakes and what's happening there. We know that in in Genesis 3, it's the snake that offers the forbidden fruit to the first man and woman. It's, It's the embodiment of evil, destructive, deceptive power. It's the first time we see it. Fast forward now to Exodus chapter 4. There's this curious text where God has called this man named Moses to go and deliver God's people who are living in enslavement in Egypt. And Moses just doesn't really want to do it. He doubts whether he's capable of doing it. Like the disciples, Moses carries um, doubt around the power of God. And if it can reach so deep into something as broken as slavery and systemic oppression. 
And as Moses and God are sort of going back and forth with Moses stubbornly insisting he's not fit to go to Egypt, God does a strange thing. He invites him to throw the shepherd's staff that he's holding onto the ground. So Moses does this. And when the staff hits the ground, it turns into a snake. Now in ancient Egypt, the place where Moses was being sent to do this seemingly impossible thing, the snake was actually a symbol of royal authority and power. The snake was worn on the headdress of pharaohs as an emblem of personal protection, but also as this sort of visual warning to anyone that might try and threaten that power. And it isn't a power, we gotta be clear about this, it's not aligned with God's purposes. It's that evil, destructive, deceptive power. So the rod becomes a snake and Moses jumps back. And then God says to Moses, reach up and grab the snake and and don't just grab it, but grab it by the tail. That's a strange detail to include. Again, some context here is helpful. In the ancient world, charmers or magicians who worked with snakes, they would always grab the snake by the head because this made it much more difficult for the snake to, to bite them. But God says, take it by the tail, the seemingly most irresponsible place to grab it which Moses does, and the snake turns back into his shepherd's staff. See, wrapped up in this image of the snake, there is a history of a rather convincing but certainly lesser power trying to thwart, trying to overtake, trying to work its way into hearts and systems, trying to manipulate and discourage God's people and God's church and God's purposes in the world. This power was present in the garden when Eve ate the fruit. This power motivates Pharaoh's action. This power nailed Jesus to the cross. And this power can seem like it has the upper hand in our world today. We sense this when we glance at news headlines or just pick up our phone for a minute to look at social media. On any given day, these actions, uh, seeing the news, it's enough to just kind of put me in a funk to cause me to wonder, do our efforts Do our actions, do they even matter? We can share Moses' sense that his own life could not influence history in any hopeful direction. We can feel like the disciples who had given up, right? They were behind locked doors. They were afraid, convinced they had lost to the snake. The snake had bitten and won. See, when God tells Moses to pick up the snake by the tail, when Jesus said to the disciples, you will pick up a snake and not be bitten, it's this assurance of God's power. It was never about the magic trick. It's about how the supreme power of God motivated by love embodied in the risen Christ and now given to this group of people is working through human action of those who follow. Even if you pick up the snake by the tail, even if you give him a head start, so to speak, even if it seems like evil has the upper hand at points, don't be deceived because it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing compared to my power. I have a friend who lives in Portland and she has uh, two girls. The oldest is five. The younger is younger than that. And um, they're lovely. They're fun. They're wonderful, smart little people. Uh, The oldest uh, actually has an autism diagnosis. And recently this friend shared an experience where she and the two girls and their family dog went on a walk from their house to a park nearby. Now, those of you who maybe have autism or you know someone uh, that has autism, you understand that it is um, an experience that comes with, uh, there's a lot of beautiful things about that, but there's also a very real struggle that can be part of that experience. So a series of things happened at the park and the oldest daughter was having just a really hard time. And it became clear to my friend at some point that they needed to, to get home, but 
the older daughter was actually running into traffic and the dog got away. And so she sat the younger one down and said, don't move and ran out into the street to get the, the older daughter and finally got kind of everyone gathered together and was just sitting there. And of course this had become a spectacle in the park. And, um, my friend at this point is just saying, she, she was just kind of crying. Like she was so overwhelmed and, um, said this woman approached her and all she remembers, the woman was wearing a red hat. And the woman said to her, give me the dog, give me the scooter and you walk and I'm just going to follow you. And so the woman did what she said. And my friend picked up her girls and they start, she started walking home and the woman didn't say a word the whole time, just right there with her until they got to the house, several blocks away, they get to the house. My friend turns around to uh, retrieve the scooter and the um, dog. And uh, she noticed the woman was gone. That's not actually true, but I know some of you thought I was going there. She wasn't an angel. <laughs> Every time I tell that story, I'm like, the woman needs to disappear. She doesn't disappear. She's standing there. She's standing there in a red hat. And on the red hat, it says, get behind me, Satan. And I love that story. I love that hat. I need to get one of those hats. We all need to get one of those hats. But the more I reflect on it, the more I think to myself, here's a woman. Here's a woman who understands resurrection power, understands that loving action taken in Jesus's name, like walking a family who is struggling home from the park. These are not small gestures, but part of this new story. And they're loaded with resurrection power. This past Friday, as some of you might be aware, was Earth Day. It's a day where we, you know, celebrate and commit to the stewardship of of creation. And I didn't know it until this past year, but the founder of Earth Day was a man named John McConnell, who's a deeply committed Christian, actually part of the Pentecostal faith. And it was because of his deep faith that McConnell took environmental action. He believed he was part of this new story where the whole of creation was being redeemed. And therefore his action in the midst of that story, it held power. What does it mean to be risen? It means our actions take up new power in this story. And friends, in this season of so much hard news, this word is one of encouragement. Like I read this story, I study this story and I can feel it's giving, literally that's what that word means. It's giving us courage. As you speak, as you pray, as you teach, as you love your neighbor, as you care for the earth, as you parent, as you do that work in the loving name of Jesus, your actions are not in vain, but are actually the embodiment of a new power. You're holding snakes. You're, you're fighting the good fight. Like Moses and like the disciples, you're part of a new story. You're saying, get behind me, Satan. So that brings us to our third and final point, which is a new invitation. And this invitation is really a dance, kind of an interplay, so to speak, between the first point, which was about sort of the depth of belief, and that second point, which is about new power through our action. See, Jesus appears to his followers after his resurrection, and his invitation is that they would write themselves into the story through both belief and action. And one of the things I find so remarkable about this text is that Jesus finds the disciples who have not believed not one testimony, but two testimonies that others have offered. And so he reprimands them for not believing. And then he immediately sends them out to act, to live this story with power. I love that. Like he doesn't sit them down and make sure they have a perfect doctrine or they they really get that, you know, it's him. He doesn't quiz them to make certain they believe enough. 
He doesn't send them off to seminary. He says, look, here I am. I've risen, now go. I'll never forget the week Sam and I were married for a lot of reasons, but one reason in particular, um, I just like panicked, right? Like I won't, you don't have to show hands, but uh, we were gonna get married. I just got really nervous that, um, you know, I wasn't ready to be married. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with Sam. It was more about me. So I picked up the phone and I called our good friend who's actually the pastor who was performing the ceremony. And in that conversation, I walked him through all my doubts and my fears. And I ended by basically saying, look, I, I don't think I've prayed enough about this. Um, and I just, I don't feel confident that I'm ready to be married. And there was a pause for a moment on the phone. And he said, Abby, I think you're probably right. I was like, come on, that's not why I called you. Like, that's not what you're supposed to say, right? And he said, I think you're probably right. But then he went on, he said, you probably haven't prayed enough. Like, that's true. And I trust that you don't feel ready. But he said, I know you and I know Sam and I've witnessed the two of you together and I think you should get married. I was like, great, thank you. So we did. Were we 100% ready? No. Did we have a lot to figure out? Yes. Do we still have things we are figuring out every single day? Yes. Now, I'm not endorsing rushing into marriage or making that decision lightly, but I do think there's a parallel here to the invitation Jesus makes to his disciples and to us. It's in the same conversation, the same breath almost, that he tells them, believe and go, act, do. See, belief in the risen Jesus, it's so important. It's absolutely something we're called to. But I think we have a tendency sometimes we can get stuck in and even hindered by this question of belief in in our heads. Do I believe enough? As you hear me talking about a certain depth of faith, you might be new to all this and wondering like, am I there yet? Am I ready? Do I belong here? Or maybe you've been a believer for a long time and you've navigated, you know, a really hard grief or disappointment. Or you've seen the underbelly of the church or of Christian nationalism and the disillusionment of faith as you wondering, like, do I still believe any of this? I love that Easter moment when we gather and proclaim he has risen indeed. Like this is the wedding vow moment, the confident moment, right? I do. And yet some days my belief can feel like he's risen. I think (laughs) he's risen like 51% or 12%. See the beauty of this new invitation is that Jesus went to the cross and has risen precisely because We are a people prone to doubt, prone to get it wrong, prone to believe all sorts, all sorts of lesser powers. And the good news is there's grace enough for me on the days when my belief is small and there's grace enough for me on the days when my belief is full and robust and I'm full of joy. And wherever you find yourself on that spectrum today, my encouragement is simple. Take a step into the story. That command to believe and go, to believe and do, it all happens in the same breath. And if we stay committed to God's story as we navigate this tension, if we act, if we love neighbor, if we do meaningful work, we practice generosity, we serve others, show up for them when they're in pain. We parent with presence. We we seek justice. We pray continually. We do these things. We find that in this dance of belief and action, our belief is often strengthened right? It's kind of like we're walking through a marriage and finding that through marriage, I'm actually more ready to be married. One of my favorite writers is a woman named Kathleen Norris. And I think she's my favorite because she writes so honestly about struggle and about doubt. She's a deeply faithful person, but she went through a a time in life that was hard due to some mental health struggles, some issues in her marriage. 
um, disillusionment with the church. And in the midst of that season, she went and stayed for a time actually at a monastery. I love this. Most of us like take a break from church. She moved into one quite literally. Um, But as she writes and reflects on that time, you get the sense that her faith was just sort of hanging by a thread, right? It was barely there. So she took action. She leaned in. She showed up for worship each week when she couldn't bring herself to sing the daily prayers. She just listened to others sing in her community and kind of hold her up. She served others who also lived in that space day in and day out. And as she reflects on that experience, here's what she said. She said, if I had to find one word to describe how belief came to take hold in me, it would be repetition, right? It's the believing and the doing. We keep showing up with what faith we have in the risen Jesus. Just a moment, the band's going to come back out to close this. And I'd invite you to consider, is there a space you're longing to see and receive resurrection life, but it feels too deep, too far gone. Have an honest conversation with God about that right now. Maybe feel prompted, come up. You can, you're free to kneel here, write in one of our prayer books as we do that. That in and of itself, it's an action. It's staying in the story. Might be meeting with someone after the service to pray or coming to find John Wayne and I. We'd love to, to talk with you for a bit. Might be signing up for a, a Bethany wilderness trip today. As we do these things, one foot in front of the other, as we act, we get glimpses of this otherworldly power. We become witnesses to newness. We find strength. We find courage in the midst of so much, so much right now that is hard. And as a church, as a church, we become together this lived expression of this very same story. It didn't end with the book of Mark. It didn't end with these 12 verses. It's in us. The risen Christ in us, it is our story. That's what it means that Jesus has risen. Let's close now in prayer. Loving Father, it is a gift to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Times of darkness to know that the snake does not win. God, that You indeed are good and you are loving and you are just and you are faithful. And that at the end of the day, your power, your power, it wins. God, I just pray for each of us in this room. Sometimes it feels like your church, these these people that we've been called to follow you in this crazy world. And it just feels like we're limping along, carrying a lot of wonder, carrying doubts, carrying questions, the same questions the disciples held about just the depth. How deep does this really go? God, all of us have those places in our heart. And I I just ask today by your Holy Spirit power that we would see your resurrection power, just even a glimpse of hope in that space. That new life would find us that we'd be encouraged, the true, that true word, that we would find courage in this story. God, for anyone who feels just discouraged in this moment, I pray that we could just put one foot in front of the other. We could do the thing in your name, even if we can just barely whisper your name. We do the thing that we would pay attention, that we would see your power, 
at work in our lives, in this church, in this city, in this world. God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you have risen. Pray this in Jesus' name.